Before the British released their claim to the country of India, we read that and we, we uh, read in history about uh, an interesting friendship. The friendship between Mahatma Gandhi and Lord Irwin, who was the governor of India when it was last under British rule. They had become friends through India's struggle for independence. And on their return from one of the roundtable conferences in London, as they're trying to work out how do we end the strikes and, and, and the different things that were going on and the taxes that the British were putting on the, the uh, Indian people, they came back from that conference. Lord Irwin um, had paid a visit to uh, Mahatma Gandhi in his, in his home. And during the conversation, uh, Lord Irwin put this question to his host. He said, Mahatma, as man to man, tell me what you consider to be the solution to the problems of your country and mine. Taking up a little book from a nearby lampstand, Gandhi opened it up to the fifth chapter of Matthew and replied, when your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in this Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems not only of our countries, but those of the whole world. This week I had a question that, I, that kept coming back to me. How can anybody preach a sermon the great, uh, about the greatest sermon ever given by the greatest preacher who ever lived? Well, I certainly can't do that this morning. But as we begin our, our summer series on the Sermon on the Mount, I encourage you to be reading through Matthew chapter 5 and, uh, through 7 every week. Become really familiar with this greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And today what I uh, can offer you in this sermon is like just some seeds uh, that are in a great forest that Jesus planted in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so keep that in mind as we walk through this, this message. Um, I can't preach a message on this sermon and do it justice. Only Jesus can, and so we seek him. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you, and uh, we come to you in great humility because what you shared with your disciples back then and with your disciples today rocks our world. It challenges our personal life. It challenges us as we try to live our life in this world. And so we ask that you would give us grace through your Holy Spirit to learn just a little something, um, to be able to appreciate one tree in this great forest because we have a lifetime to walk this forest and learn from it. So we ask for your Holy Spirit's grace and teaching this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Everyone listening to Jesus' sermon in that first century would have been completely surprised at the way Jesus methodically contradicted everything that they had been taught in their legalistic religious tradition as Jews. The rules upon rules layered on top of more rules layered on top of good Old Testament teaching so thick that the original teaching was really lost underneath what they had been taught. And Jesus was knocking it all down. 
Even more vital as we get ready to look at this Sermon on the Mount is to consider how his words would have sounded to those original people who were expecting a conquering Messiah, one who would overthrow their oppressors. And he speaks like this in the Sermon on the Mount. And as startling as it is to hear that, that God expects us to turn the other cheek, imagine how it would have sounded to a nation full of people who were sick and tired of being struck on the cheek. You see, many of us in the West, especially those who have grown up with the Bible, who have read the Sermon on the Mount, were used to hearing those words. But his first listeners would have been totally challenged and rocked by his teachings. And the Beatitudes are the first few verses here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 11. These are really the introduction to the rest of his sermon. And we'll notice that in his introduction, there are no commands. He doesn't say, do this or do that. Instead, he says, be this kind of person. We read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus says nine times, blessed are these certain people. Blessed are these certain people. And before we look at these people and then examine our lives accordingly, I really want to look at those two words, blessed are. First of all, what did Jesus mean by the word blessed? When we think of blessings, we think of blessings as all the good things that God bestows upon us, the things that we receive from God that we say, boy, thanks, God, that was such a blessing. And they are blessings, but that's not what this word means. That's not what this word means here. Blessed in the Beatitudes is talking about a state of contentment. A person who is content. It has less to do with the things we receive from God and has more to do with the state that we are in. And as Jesus preaches, it has more to do with who we are as people, what we are becoming as his disciples, and less and less really about what we have or even what we do which is why he begins with talking about people, not things. He talks about character traits, not commands. That's what blessedness is, who we are right now at this time. Are we content? Secondly, notice that the blessedness in the Beatitudes is to be experienced right now. He says, blessed are these people. It's present tense. He's not saying life may stink now, but just wait till the rewards and then you'll feel blessed. That's not what he's saying. 
Blessed are, right now, present tense. These people are experiencing a state of contentment right now. Not later when the reward comes. And so the question is, when we approach this introduction, which again, each of these uh, statements of Jesus, we could talk about for a year. That's how powerful this sermon is. But the question we, we have to ask is, are you in a state of blessedness? Are you content with all that's going on in your life and, and all the worries that are ahead and the things that have happened in the past, the regrets that you may have, are you in a state of blessedness or contentment? J Jesus says it's possible if we are these kinds of people. It has nothing to do with what you have and everything to do with who you are and who you are becoming in Christ. Jesus says, blessed are, and then he names the quality of a person, not a quantity or something that they can get, something they're waiting for. He says they're blessed right now. Jesus is talking about the kind of person inside, not so much the behavior that she shows. Now, after reading the Sermon on the Mount, and I know many of you have already done that, and I hope you continue to read it through the summer, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, you can realize right away there's no way that you could live this life. There's no way I can live this life. I mean, I get to verse 4, and I'm like, I'm dead in the water. <laughs> we can't live this life without the help of the Holy Spirit. We can't live this life without the strength of Jesus. And so as we begin to talk about the Sermon on the Mount this summer, really honestly, I believe that's why Jesus begins with this first phrase. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because the poor in spirit, like those who are poor economically, realize they have nothing. They're utterly dependent. And for us to live the kind of life that he describes in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7 in this great sermon, we need to be utterly dependent upon God. A person who is poor economically has very little or has nothing, and they're dependent on others for food and, and for shelter, the basics. They're powerless. And so Jesus says, it all starts with me admitting I am spiritually powerless in and of myself. I am poor in spirit. Because then I can become dependent on him. Jesus says the person who understands they have nothing on their own spiritually, who is utterly dependent on God, that person is blessed. Because they're depending on God. The person who understands that they're on their own, they're spiritually poverty-stricken on their own, that's a blessed person. Well, how can that be? How can that be? Well, I have nothing of value to bring to God in and of myself. I come to God empty. And when I realize that, and I come to God empty, now he has something to fill. A person who is full of themselves has no room for God to fill them. And so we come to him poor in spirit, and he can fill us. We don't get to enjoy the kingdom of heaven unless we admit, first of all, that spiritually we are utterly dependent on God. We are poor in spirit. And remember, a person who knows that is blessed right now. Not just later, but they're blessed right now as they're depending on God. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. 
for they'll be comforted. Those who mourn are, are people who are broken. People who mourn are broken hearted. It may be at the death of a loved one. It may be over sin in, in their own lives or as they look out at the world and they, and they see a, a broken world and they mourn the brokenness of this world. They don't run from it. They don't hide it. They don't minimize it. They don't blame others for it. They feel it to the point of mourning over it, the brokenhearted. Jesus says, blessed are the, the broken, for they mourn. How are they comforted? Well, it says here, uh, the presence of God. When I read the same idea in Isaiah 57, where it says, this is the, this is the high and, and the exalted one, and this is what he says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. That's where God lives. It's where his presence goes. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the broken, Isaiah 57. And Psalm 147 says he heals the brokenhearted and he comforts and binds up their wounds. So the person who mourns over the brokenness in their own lives or the brokenness in this world, they're comforted by the presence of God. You know, calloused, Calloused people see no need for comfort. You might know somebody like that. The jaded and the callous don't seek comfort. They don't get it. They won't give it. And the sad thing is when they need it, it's not there. So I wonder, how then can a calloused person understand the heart of God? Can a calloused person really comprehend the gospel the gospel of Jesus? Because to understand and truly experience the gospel, we have to be able to see the brokenness of the world, to see the brokenness of our hearts and our need for healing. Blessed are those who mourn because they are broken. And then he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we think of the word meek we're not talking about the kid that's getting bullied and doesn't stand up for himself. The meek are those who are humble. The meek have stopped chasing after something in order to be important. They say, I don't need stuff or I don't have the drive to get stuff in order to be valued, in order to be important, to be loved, because I know that a pile of degrees or money or likes on Facebook or Instagram really don't add to my value. I am valued because God loves me. Simply that. They're convinced they're valued by God because of his love. They're convinced that their importance rests in his view of them, so they don't need all these other drives and all these other accolades. They're humble. In fact, whether it's literally uh, material things or what, other, what others think, they can let that stuff go. They can let it go, the meek. And think of the freedom in that blessing of being meek. There's, there's no competitions with people. There's no need to compare with others. There's no one-upmanship. There's no keeping up with the Joneses. There's no need to seek revenge because someone hurt you. You can let all that stuff go. And what do you get instead? Jesus says an inheritance on earth in the future. He's really talking about what we read in Psalm 37, which says, a little while, 
and the wicked will be no more. You don't have to worry about the wicked. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land. Psalm 37.10. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. You see, when you're secure in the hand of the king of everything, nothing and no one has a hold on you. Blessed are the meek. That's a blessed place to live. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those whose staples in their diet spiritually are righteousness, you hunger and thirst for those, they will be filled. We just finished a series on the book of 1 Samuel, which follows the lives of two kings, really, Saul and David. And it's really a story of two thirsts and two hungers, isn't it? Saul hungered and thirsted for himself. David hungered and thirsted for righteousness. And what was the result? Saul was tormented by his unsuccessful, unfulfilling, unsatisfying drive to be on top. But David trusted God's ways. He trusted God's timing and was handed the kingdom. I mean, go back and listen to that series on your long drives as you're getting ready to go on vacation this summer or in your quiet times and just watch how Saul's heart shrivels up. Because, in fact, he starves his heart because he's hungering and thirsting after the wrong things. And where David, you can watch his life just expand in fulfillment of God's promise because he's hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus moves on and says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Remember, Jesus is speaking uh, to a crowd that has seen very little mercy for years, very little mercy, neither from their government or from their religious leaders. It's cruel and exhausting living in a ledger society which says, you did this, this is your punishment. You can't live up to these things. These are your punishments. When the rules are stacked against you and you're whacked the second you step outside the lines. Jesus and his disciples, you know, one time rolled the grain off the head of a few wheat stalks and they were accused immediately of working on the Sabbath by the religious leaders. Not a lot of mercy. And the people he was speaking to, that's what they lived under. And long before he flipped over the tables in the temple, Jesus, right here in this sermon, was flipping over what it means to follow God and live like a citizen in the kingdom. Stay tuned for the rest of the series, and you'll see what I mean. Because he did more than flip tables. He was flipping the whole thing on its head. I mean, Jesus ate with a tax collector employed by Rome, called him to be one of his disciples, the one who recorded what we're reading right now. That's flipping it over. He applauded the faith of a Syrian Phoenician woman. He declared the good Samaritan more righteous than the religious leaders. And a Gentile centurion's faith made Jesus say in Matthew 8, I have, found, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Jesus, like mercy, not only blesses the recipient, 
it's reciprocated. The giver gets blessed. And those are the rules of the kingdom, according to Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Then he says, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they'll see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That promise should make you sit up straight. They shall see God, to see God. That promise alone blew me away as I read these first 11 verses. Who gets to see God? In Psalm 15, we read, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? Those whose walk is blameless, who do what is right, who speak the truth from their heart, the pure in heart. Jesus is saying, blessed are those people with, with utmost integrity and utmost honesty and authenticity before God. Because this is what's required to see God. And you know, that, that makes sense. That makes sense because God can't look on sin. How can we see God if God can't look on sin? We have to be pure in heart. Habakkuk 1.13 says, God, your, Lord, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So only the pure in heart will be able to see God. So how does he deal with me then? Because I sin every day. If you, like me, are in Christ, if you made a decision to follow Christ, God doesn't see my sin any longer. He doesn't see me in my sin anymore. The Father sees the righteous Son who stands for me, who stands by me, who stands in front of me at the throne of God as my advocate. He doesn't see my sin. And Jesus, the Son of God, carried all my sins, and he, he took them with, with him into the grave. And then when he rose three days later, he did it not only to prove his power and his righteousness, but also to impart his power and righteousness. So God doesn't see me as a sinner anymore. Amen? That's what happens when we're in Christ. And as I walk in faith and in purity, I can see God work. I can see his spirit move. I can feel his presence. And one day, I will be able to see him physically. I will be able to walk up to Jesus and embrace him and kneel at his feet and say, thank you. I'll be able to worship him face to face. Because the pure in heart will see God. And Jesus puts us in that blessed state because of the cross and the empty tomb. The pure in heart, they'll see God. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemaking children imitating their peacemaking father. Again, think of how this sounded to his disciples and the people there on the mountainside who've been fighting for years against their oppressors. He even called one of the zealots to be one of his disciples. Remember, his name is Simon the Zealot, we read. And he says, be a peacemaker. Jesus was teaching, this is what Jesus was trying to teach Peter. 
when he told him to put away his sword in Gethsemane, when he rebuked James and John and called them the sons of thunder because they wanted to scorch a town with fire from heaven just because they rejected Jesus. This is what Jesus was teaching his disgusted disciples when they found him conversing at a well with a Samaritan woman with five failed marriages. He was teaching them it's time to make peace and it's time to help people find peace with God. This prayer that I have here on the screen, though it's accidentally attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, he actually did not write this prayer. About 400, 500 years later, somebody said he did. Um, but it spells out beautifully what a peacemaker does. You may have heard it before. What a peacemaker has to endure, what a peacemaker prays in imitation of his peacemaking father. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, let me sow pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, let me sow light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I might not so much seek to be consoled as to consult. To be understood as to understand. Grant that I may not so much seek to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. It's an incredible prayer. It's a peacemaker's prayer. And I thought, how would my week change how would I change if I genuinely prayed this prayer every morning when I woke up and then I just prayed it before I went to bed? Just a simple thing. And I, and I encourage you, if the Spirit's leading you in needing to be a, a better peacemaker as a citizen of the kingdom, find one other person today and commit to one another and to the Lord to pray this prayer in the morning when you wake up and right before you go to bed and see what happens. Get together, have some coffee, and share with each other what, what happened in the last week, just one week. How did God speak? How did God use you? Now, if I stated... Um, in this sermon, at the very beginning, who in this room wants to be blessed? Every hand would go up. I mean, you could go and ask anybody out on the street, would you love to be blessed? Every hand would go up. But if I started the message this morning with, who here wants to mourn? I don't know if I'd say as many hands. And yet Jesus teaches blessedness comes when we live this hard path of being a disciple. And it gets harder. Because look how he ends. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he continues in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. 
Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, when that happens, great is your reward. Rejoice, because you're just like the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, how many of you today want to be blessed with persecution? A pastor of a huge network of underground churches in China describes the demise and the rebirth of his network of churches. When there was a period of religious freedom in China, a little window of religious freedom, they decided to build a church building and begin services above ground. People came by the thousands, grew like crazy, and then the government came in and shut it down. And the pastor was relieved. He was relieved that his church was shut down. Why? Because his people were getting accustomed to coming, sitting, hearing a sermon, and then going home. He said it was getting difficult stirring anybody to action. The shutdown actually brought them back to their core values, their five core values, which I'm going to share with you right now. And most of them, we can probably just check the boxes and say, yeah, we get that, we get that, we get that. But the fifth one kind of weirded me out. Here are the five values. Number one, a deep commitment to prayer. Check. Right? We agree with that. Check. Number two, everyone learning the word of God. Check. You good? Check. Number three, everyone sharing the gospel. Check. Right? Number four, a regular expectation of miracles. Believing the Holy Spirit is who we believe him to be. He's going to move and there will be miracles. Slower check. Okay, but check. Here's number five. Core value of the church. Number five. Embracing suffering for the glory of Christ. Sign me up, right? Bring on the persecution. You know, when I was a church planner, I read every book I could about church growth. I went to every seminar I could afford to go to to learn about church planting, and not a single one mentioned suffering as a church growth principle. And it's all through Scripture. According to Jesus, persecution brings blessing. That is nowhere close to an American Christian's view of blessing. When we think of blessing, nowhere close to it. But it is spoken of throughout all of Scripture. Suffering for his sake is a blessing, and it brings blessing. Blessed are the persecuted. This Chinese pastor was wise enough in the Scripture, and he knew enough of the book of Acts <laughs> to include suffering in his plan for his church's growth and ministry. Does that blow you away? That's nuts. Core value number five, embrace suffering, guys. Francis Chan says, until we embrace the suffering that so many Christians embrace around the world, we're not going to have an unstoppable church. The enemy is fighting so hard to keep us from reaching that place because once we get there, he has no foothold. We are unstoppable. Our goal, now understand, our goal is not suffering. I'm not going to go out this week and, and part of my action plan from today's sermon is go suffer. That's not what I'm saying. 
Our goal is to pursue Jesus. But if we are to be like Jesus, if we are to live the Sermon on the Mount, these kingdom principles and his strength, there's going to be trouble. So in your pursuit of Jesus, last week, where was the insult? Where was the ridicule? Where was the suffering? What trouble did my discipleship cause last week? <clears throat> in other words, what can of worms did you open up? What did you step in that caused trouble because of righteousness? It's a question, a hard question, I've begun to ask myself seriously after reading Jesus' words here. If I don't, I'm, I'm missing the mark of a disciple. And I'm missing out on a blessing, according to his words. See what I mean by a forest? There is so much here, and we just stepped inside for a few moments. This is the longest sermon of Jesus recorded. <clears throat> We've only scratched the surface. And he's talking not about what we do so much as who we are and who, are, who we're becoming. But I want to leave us kind of at the edge of the forest this morning uh, with his words. I want his introduction to be our conclusion and let the Spirit work that in over the summer. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read these words aloud. Before we pray, let's just let these words soak in. I'll read the first part of each sentence. They're, they're in gold up here on the slide, and you can read the second part, which is white. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Let's pray. Jesus, your sermon ends with, when you had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at your teaching because you taught as one who had authority. One who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And so this morning, Lord, there's not much more that can be said. We are truly poor in spirit. We are truly dependent, utterly dependent on you to live like this to live like you before an obstinate world. And so bless us, I pray, with the power to live like this for your glory, for your sake, for those who are lost to be found. God, I pray for your power to do this. In your name, amen.